If you have a Bible, we're going to be in John 2 as you grab a seat. I'm going to try to get set up here. Well, I don't know what it's like uh, at your house, uh, but at my house, I have terrible, absolutely terrible cell coverage. Uh, you're thinking, what does it have to do with anything? Hold on. Um, there have been a few times where, you know, my Wi-Fi goes out or something, and I find myself wandering around my house, like, trying to find a single bar like an idiot. You know, just marching around. I go outside. I'm trying to send a text to my brother. And I'm, like, holding it up over my neighbor's fence, trying to get just something to connect so the text message can go through. Um, these phones that we have are so impressive, impressive little computers in our pockets. But so much of what makes these things work is a network connection. You know, without a connection to the network, without either cell coverage or Wi-Fi, you know, so many of the capabilities of these things stop working. They just become a really fancy camera. Uh, they lose their life, so to speak. Well, I bring that up because according to the Bible, uh, humans are made in such a way that we are intended to have a connection to God. We run, we, we, we operate, we are meant to have our lives, you know, work by being connected to God. Now, I know my kids, I sometimes wonder if they run on goldfish and tangerines, but, but no, they're meant to run on God. They're meant to have this connection to God. His life is supposed to flow in us and through us, and we stop working the way that we are supposed to work when we are disconnected from God. We are meant to have this connection. Now, students of the Bible know that in the garden, in the beginning, it was good. And there was this connection that was flawless, uninterrupted, unbroken. But when our first parents sinned, well, everything changed and everything went downhill. The unbroken connection was now lost. It was disrupted. If you keep reading through the Bible from chapter 1, you see that, that when that connection to God is restored... Well, then life flows. Life goes well. And when that connection fades or it's interrupted, people suffer. Because humans, we were made for this connection to God. Now, when God's life, his, his power, uh, when it flowed most obviously, when, he, when God's character is revealed most clearly, when heaven touches earth in the most dramatic ways, the Bible calls this glory. Okay, glory. We might think of, of Mount Sinai, Moses on the mountain saying, God, show me your glory. And, and God says, oh, I'll hide you in the rock and I'll pass by. You can look at my back. But, but there's, there's fire and there's trumpet blasts and there's power. Or we might think of, of you know, the, the tabernacle. When the glory fills the tabernacle for the first time, and there's like fire and comes out from the door and burns up everything on the altar. We might think of, of Solomon's temple when, when they dedicate it and glory fills the temple, the Holy of Holies, for the first time. Power, fire. You know, we might think of Elijah on Mount Carmel offering his sacrifice and fire comes down and, you know, burns up his sacrifice. There's glory. There's power. When heaven touched earth, there was power. And as scary as it was, the people knew that life was to follow. We were made for this connection. Now, in the Old Testament, the place where God's presence was supposed to touch down, the place where that connection was supposed to flow was in the tabernacle and then later the temple. That was, again, the place where heaven touched earth, as it were. That was the place that God's glory was supposed to be manifested. Now, hold that idea in your head because our passage this week is all about that place of connection. 
that place where God's power is supposed to touch earth, the place where glory would be seen. If you remember last week, uh, if you weren't there, listen to Kevin's teaching online, it was wonderful, but the passage ended with Jesus making this outlandish promise to Nathaniel and to the disciples, and he said, you know what? You are going to see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is, is a reference, as, as we learned last week, to Genesis 28 and what's called Jacob's ladder. But the point is that they would see heaven come down. They would see glory. Now this week, we will see Jesus tell us in both word and deed that he is that place. Our passage, it comes in, in two scenes. Actually, two feasts, as it were. The first is a wedding feast where Jesus will turn water into wine, and the second is at the temple for the Passover feast. And heads held together, we're going to see Jesus, well, rather, we're going to hear Jesus say that he is the point of connection. He is the one through whom we access heaven. He's the one through whom life flows. He's the one through whom our connection to God is restored. And therefore, through him, we can begin to experience life in the way we were always intended. So with that in mind, if you have your Bible open to John chapter 2, I'm going to read it, and then we will study it together. This is John chapter 2. I'm going to be reading the whole thing. But just, just enjoy the storytelling of, of this thing that Jesus did. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons and Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Let me give God thanks. God, we, we do praise you and thank you for speaking, for giving us your word that we might hear from you. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do just that. You'd open our eyes, you'd soften our hearts to behold wondrous things in your word. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there are two scenes, two feasts, and then a kind of epilogue in our passage. So we're going to take them in turn, kind of three different parts, and we're going to organize our time around a few key words. These are just they show up again and again in John, and they're these. Okay, We're going to look at the sign in verses 1 to 11. We're going to look at the word in verses 12 to 22, and then the hour in verses 23 to 25. Let's dive into the first one, the sign, verses 1 to 11. This first scene is so good. It's no wonder that it's on many people's you know, greatest hits when they think of Jesus and his ministry, what he did. But think of the scene. You have this wedding Okay? It's in Nathaniel's hometown of Cana, and Jesus' mother is there. And then we find out there's a problem. There is no wine. Now, Karis and I, we got married in the early afternoon. We had kind of a, a bigger wedding, and so we had a, a coffee and cake reception, nice and simple. It was a dry wedding. And I could imagine some of my friends kind of looking sideways at each other, murmuring a little bit, a little disappointed, and saying, they have no wine, you know, kind of upset. But that would be nothing like the problem here. Okay, not even close. What happens here, this, this would have been a huge deal in the first century Middle East. Okay, wedding feasts, they, they provided a, a significant break from the day-to-day poverty that was endured by the rural poor. And they could often, these, these feasts, they could last a full week. Now, the wine at the feast was a central component of the, well, of the refreshments and the hospitality. To fail in adequately providing for the guests would involve social disgrace. You would be talked about. In the closely knit communities of Jesus' day, such an error would never be forgotten. It would haunt the newly married couple all of their lives, most likely. So there's this tremendous act of compassion in this first miracle of Jesus, turning the water into wine, saving this couple from shame. But there's even more going on. Notice the interaction between Jesus and his mother before the miracle. His mother comes to him and lays out the problem simply and matter-of-factly. There is no wine. But Jesus' response is rather abrupt, maybe even seems a little harsh. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Some modern translations try to soften the blow. They write, dear woman, uh, but they miss the point in doing that. Okay, this isn't offensive language in Greek, so don't think it's, it's somehow misogynistic or anything like that. No, but it is putting distance between himself and his mother. In fact, they've looked, and in, in all of the ancient Greek literature we can find, there are nowhere, no examples of a son addressing his mother this way or calling his mother this with this word, except these two places in John, in John 2 and in 19, which we'll see in just a second. Okay, it's, it's, he's disengaging from his mother. And we see it in what he says next. He says, what does that have to do with me? 
He's separating himself, disengaging from the problem, but also from her emotional responsibility for the problem. Most literally, we could probably translate that phrase, what me and you? There's this distance between him and his mother. Now think about how hard this would have been for Mary. I mean, it seems from the biblical record that that Joseph, Jesus' father, he dies at some point after Jesus' childhood. So as the eldest son, most likely Jesus, well, he was probably the primary provider for Mary and the family, at least for a time until his ministry begins. But here, Jesus makes it clear. He says, I have now started something new. Having begun his ministry, Jesus is now marked off. He's separated himself from all previous entanglements and is now solely focused on his mission assigned to him by God. Now, as a culture, we've decided to to honor mothers on this holiday, okay? Mother's Day, and it's a good thing. A big part of what we remember and honor is their sacrifice, not just in pouring themselves out for their kids, but but the sacrifice that, that one day they have to relinquish their kids to the world. I mean, you, you conceive and you bear and you birth and you nurture and you raise, and then you have to give away. In the end, you have to let go of this thing that you just poured yourself into. You know, all the 16-year-old boys listening are like, yeah, amen. But that's another, another sermon. But here's Mary, okay? She had born him. She nursed him. She taught his his baby fingers basic skills. She watched him, you know, learn to walk and and fall over and stumble along the way. Apparently, she she had come to rely on him as a family provider. But now, now that he has begun his ministry, now that he began fulfilling the reason for his coming, everything, even family ties, had to yield to give way to his divine mission. See, Mary, it's a beautiful picture. As a mother, she, she gets a taste of what the father is doing. And in this moment, she's forced to let go a little bit, to relinquish her son to his purpose. But Jesus says even more. He says, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to fully reveal who I am to the world. You know, we might think of Mary. She knew that Jesus was special, that, that one day this, this day would come. He's going to have this ministry. He's going to do these great things. The angel told her, and she probably was waiting. When? When's that going to come? Well, Jesus makes it clear, no, it's not now. My hour is not now. But then, did anybody else find it really curious that he goes and does the miracle? You know, we talked about this in our community group. It's kind of strange. Well, what Jesus is saying, it's, it's almost as if he's preparing to, to give us a taste. He says, I'm going to do something, but it's not the thing. He says, this isn't the moment, but I'll give you, I'll give you a teaser. And so John calls it a sign. He says, this miracle, it's not the real deal. This is a sign. It points forward to some greater act, some greater moment of revelation, some greater moment of glory. This is but a sign, a teaser, a taste. Or as someone in my community group said, it's, it's a sip. So if this is a sign, what does it signify? What does the sign point to? Well, Jesus told Nathaniel last week that he would see heaven touch earth on the Son of Man. And here they are in Nathaniel's hometown, and boom, that connection is made. Heaven's power flows. Water is turned into wine, and it's not just a little wine, but abundant wine. This isn't some cheap magic trick. No. We're told it's between 30, uh, 20 and 30 gallons times 6. Okay, that's somewhere between 600 and 900 bottles of wine. 
It's a massive quantity. That's a good party. But it's also good wine. It's of the utmost quality. The sign says, here is power. Here is generosity. Here is kindness. See, he saves the reputation of this family. Here is goodness and celebration and joy. Heaven touches earth so that the party can continue. To use the language of chapter 1, here is light shining in darkness. Light coming to earth. The Father's heart revealed and the creative word made flesh among us. Here is glory. I mean, Nathaniel was the one who asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's kind of disparaging Jesus' small hometown. And here they are just a few miles away, an even smaller town. And we might ask, can glory really break out in Cana? Can heaven touch earth in Galilee? Wasn't it supposed to be in Jerusalem at the temple? See, the sign is not just about power, but about the place where heaven touches earth. We're told that the water for this sign, that, that it's, it's held in six stone jars intended for ceremonial cleansing, a Jewish rite of, of purification. See, God had given Israel a way to approach his glory. Israel was a sinful people, but God in his grace, he made a way. Through a series of rituals, of purification, holiness codes, they could approach God's presence and offer sacrifices in the temple, be forgiven. They could reconnect to God. Well, here is the first of Jesus' sign and signs, and the new wine is pointing to a, a new way. The Jewish ritual for cleansing is going to give way to joy and life through the Messiah. Jesus performs a miracle as a sign, but he follows his deed with a, an explanation, explanatory word. So let's turn to part two, the word. From the sign to the word, verses 12 to 22. From Galilee in the north, Jesus travels down first to Capernaum and then up the hill to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. But when he gets there, he marches into town and he causes quite a ruckus in the temple by driving out all of the money changers and all of the livestock and, and, and all of it. It's a scandalous act. Now, we may not understand how big a deal this is. And so uh, one scholar, N.T. Wright, he says this about the temple. I think it's helpful. He says, the temple was the beating heart of Judaism. It wasn't just, as it were, a church on the street corner. No, it was the center of worship and music, of politics and society, of national celebration and mourning. It was also the place where you would find more animals alive and dead than anywhere else. But towering over above all these, it was, of course, the place where Israel's God, Yahweh, had promised to live in the midst of his people. It was the focal point of the nation and of the national way of life. So we, we might think, you know, we've got the White House and we've got the Capitol building. We've got Carnegie Hall or, or Dodger Stadium, Disneyland, Hollywood. But imagine if, if all of those were one place, one architectural complex. And you can, if you imagine that, you can begin to understand the significance of the place. But then Jesus comes, this unknown out-of-towner, and he comes and he drives out all of the animals. He's disrupting the, the, the religious practices that are going on there. What is he doing? Well, John the Baptist, he's already said, we saw this a couple weeks ago, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So as readers, we're, we're prepared for Jesus to replace the Passover sacrifice. But those present, they, they may not know that, and so they're shocked and appalled. So the Jewish authorities, they ask him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? 
They're asking, who do you think you are? Show us that you have authority to do this. And Jesus speaks. He gives them a bit of a riddle. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews are they're incredulous. It's taken 46 years to build this thing. You're going to raise it up in three days? I mean, that, that would be power. You know, they're standing in, in the temple complex. This was the one that was rebuilt by Herod, finished. The construction was finished about 15 years before Jesus was born. It was 300 feet wide, 300 feet long, 300 feet high, covered on all sides with these massive golden plates. It took a crew of 18,000 full-time workers 46 years to renovate it. Okay, we think Caltrans takes a while. My, oh my. Okay, 46 years. So what could Jesus mean by destroy this temple? Well, John editorializes, he explains, he says he was speaking about the temple of his body. The temple was the place that heaven touched earth. The place where the connection between God and man could be seen and experienced. And now here is Jesus saying, I am the new temple. If the stone water jars for ceremonial cleansing hinted at this, Jesus presses the point. He is the way to access God. Now, let's just pause for a minute and consider the simple but shocking claim that Jesus is making. Here he is in the center of religious and national life of Israel. He's right in the thick of things, and he says, you see all of this? Look at all of it. All the rituals, all the preparations, all the steps you have to take, all the economic implications, all the trappings of religion. You no longer need any of it. I am the place where you can now access God. I mean, setting aside the insult or the offense that may have been taken, just think about the mechanics of it. Jesus says, you don't have to do this anymore. I am the thing you've been trying to get with all of this. You know, friends, some of us get so wrapped up in the stuff of religious devotion that maybe we forget sometimes that it is all intended to connect us to him. He is here in our midst this morning saying, it's me. I'm the thing you were hoping to get out of all of this. I mean, this isn't that much preparation, a few tents and microphones and cameras, but it's all about Jesus. And if we miss him, we miss the whole point. Now, I don't want to presume that everyone here or everyone watching is in that place. Maybe some of us don't really know what we're doing or why we're here. We've been maybe dabbling in religion a little bit. See, for some people, you know, it seems to be doing something. They seem to enjoy it. It might give them some level of fulfillment. And we think, okay, well, maybe I'll give it a try. If that's you, can I just ask maybe gently, what, what are you hoping to get out of your religious dabbling? And are you prepared to encounter the living God? C.S. Lewis, in, in one of his books called Miracles, he's got this great section where he describes the shock of coming in contact with life for the first time. He says, you know, it's kind of like fishing. You're, you're skeptical, you're out in the water, you cast your line, and you're not expecting to catch anything. You're just kind of sitting there holding your pole, and all of a sudden, you know, something pulls on the line, and you're like, wow, there's something there. Or he says, it's like you're, you're in the dark, and no, no one else is supposed to be there, and suddenly you feel something breathe on you, and you're like, oh, wait, what is that? Sorry, that was loud on the mic. He writes this. He says, so here, here's the point. The shock comes at the precise moment when the thrill of life is communicated to us along the clue we've been following. It's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry. It's alive. 
And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. They proceed no further with Christianity. They're okay with an impersonal God. Yeah, that's well and good. Maybe a subjective God of feelings, beauty, and truth, and goodness inside our own heads. Okay, better still. Maybe a formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap into. We just manifest and things happen. That's best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching us at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband, that's quite another matter. I mean, there comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars, they hush suddenly. What was that? Was that a real footstep in the hall? And there comes a moment when people who've been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him. We never meant for it to come to that. We're still supposing he found us. I love that. Friends, if you're toiling in religion, you're doing all the stuff and you're tired, or if, if you're dabbling in religion, hear the word speak this morning and say, I am it. I am the temple. I am the place where you come to access God. Friends, come to Jesus and you may just be surprised to find life break in. Well, from the sign and the word, we finally come to, to our last key word, the hour, verses 23 to 25. As we come to, to part three of our passage, we get three verses that are initially a little head-scratching. At least they were for me when I first came across them. But they're really important for understanding both chapter two and, and setting up next week in chapter three of John. But look at verse 23. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It, it, maybe you've seen this. Each scene so far this week has ended with the disciples believing. So after the water and wine, verse 11, it says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And then verse 22, it says, you know, at the end of the, of the temple cleansing, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed. And so you get to verse 23 and now it seems as if the circle of belief is expanding. The crowds now, they're, they're seeing signs and they're believing too. But hold on, Jesus isn't so sure. Our English translations, they kind of obscure the connection a little bit between verses 23 and 24 because the words believed and the word entrust, they're the same word in Greek, just different forms. So we, we could maybe render it, you know, many trusted in Jesus, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Or many believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Jesus sees something about their belief and he doesn't trust it. Okay, that should cause us to ask, okay, what? What is it? Well, part of the question will be answered next week with Nicodemus, so I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but we get some clues in our passage right here. Look again at verse 22. The disciples believe his word when he was raised. Their belief is not based on seeing the sign, but seeing what the sign pointed to. Get this, they believed not just the sign, not just his word, but they believed in the hour. What was the hour? Jesus told his mom, my hour has not yet come. 
maybe in your community group this week, you talked about all the passages in John that, that mentioned the hour. My hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. And the hour is coming when this and this will happen. It's his hour of glorification, which in John is, is his death on the cross. The miracle of the wine, well, it, point, it was a sign that pointed forward to a greater moment of glory, a greater moment of revelation to his hour, the moment on the cross where God showed us most perfectly what it looks like for heaven to touch earth, for life to flow. Do you know that Mary only appears in John's gospel in two places? Chapter 2, and then at the foot of the cross in chapter 19. And there, too, Jesus addresses her as woman. He looks at at his mother, Mary. He's on the cross. He looks down at, at, at Mary, and he looks at John, the disciple, who's writing the gospel, and he says, woman? Behold your son. And to John, he says, behold your mother. In that moment, the sacrifice of a mother is brought to the uttermost point as she has to relinquish Jesus to his death. She has to let go as she watches him die for us. The sign at the wedding was meant to point to his hour at the cross. And his word, what he spoke, did the same. Look at verse 22. The disciples remember and believe two things, the scripture and the word he had spoken. What was the word? Destroy this temple, my body, and in three days I'll raise it up. What was the scripture? Well, he quotes Psalm 69, 9. He says, zeal for your house will consume me. And indeed it did. His zeal to make God's presence and life accessible. His zeal to reestablish the unbroken connection between heaven and earth. His zeal would lead him to his hour of the cross where he would be consumed. The hour of the cross was the place where heaven touched earth. It was the place where God made a way for his life to flow to his people. It was shocking. It was surprising. But he made a way. Cleansing us of our sins through dying in our place and being raised on the third day. The sign showed us the kind of life that would flow when heaven touches earth. The word told us the place where that connection is made, and the hour is the moment where these come together and that connection is made possible. So church, I'm, I'm almost done. And, and I just want to end with a few questions. Okay. Where are you today? I mean, think about your own, your own life. Make, let's make this personal. Personal. What is the state of your soul? I mean, what, what do you crave from heaven were it to come and touch earth? Have you told God? Maybe in a, in a simple prayer like Mary, there is no wine. Maybe you said, God, they're dying in India. God, my brother doesn't know you. God, we, we need a place to live. What's the state of your soul? I mean, John wrote these things that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may live. Are you weak this morning? Maybe you find yourself a little hopeless, unable to bear the weight of of your world on your shoulders. 
if that's you, see the water turned into wine. John wrote this down for you. See it. See the power of heaven touching earth with a word. There's transformation. Or maybe your soul is troubled. Does the world seem dark with a little light? If that's you, see that God is good. Look. See the kindness of heaven touching earth with a word. Their shame is removed. Their reputation restored. Or maybe you're tired this morning. You're, you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, but your religious efforts at cleansing, they don't seem to be enough. You're toiling. See. See the joyful life of wine flow in abundance. There is life. There's, there's celebration. There's a feast. And Jesus is inviting you to eat and drink. But friends, don't just look and see the sign. Hear the word and let the sign serve its intended purpose. See the sign and, and hear the word and let them take you to the hour, the moment where, where Jesus was glorified and God's heart was most fully revealed. Let the wine point you to the blood that flowed, that made our connection to God himself possible. There's power there, there's goodness there, there's joyful feasting made possible on display on the cross.